Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now we do swear a little in this podcast and there are some adult themes discussed. So like I will be nodding a lot. Okay. Means I'm engaged and I'm listening. That's you're engaged. <laughs> and if you're not nodding, that's if I'm not worry. nodding, you've lost me and you need yeah. to you need to add <laughs> Okay. No worries. Welcome to the Talentworks Podcast. I'm Shukri. I'm Katrina. And I'm Helen. BBC Studios is the production part of the BBC Group. So we're not public service. What we do at BBC Studios is we invest in and we produce amazing shows, both for the UK and globally. We make some shows for the BBC, but we also make them for the market, like Netflix, Channel 4, Spotify, Audible. These include Blue Planet, Pressed, Killing Eve, Strictly Come Dancing, I May Destroy You, Doctor Who, Top Gear. BBC Studios Talentworks are a small but mighty development team within BBC Studios. We work cross-genre and cross-platform. We specifically work with emerging talent, so we look to places like Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube, people who are writing blogs, maybe people who've got podcasts already, who are storytellers and looking to partner with BBC Studios to tell bigger, bolder stories. In short, we play Cupid for talent and industry. And this podcast is about giving the floor to some of those talented creators. True to form, our guests are going to lead the way. They are going to be telling us about three pieces of work that have defined their careers so far. So who have we got today? Shukri here. It's October 2022 and today I'm joined by Max Tobin. They always come quite naturally. I'm always, I'm perpetually in a state of writing about something that is causing me some kind of problem or stressing me out a little bit. That's normally when the idea happens. I'll just be thinking about it so much that naturally I'll like find myself accidentally externalising it into some sort of character. Max is an award-winning filmmaker and presenter from Birmingham. Max has been making short films for over 10 years. His films have won the Royal Television Society Awards and have been screened at a number of festivals, including the Aesthetica Short Film Festival, the New Renaissance Film Festival and the Birmingham Film Festival. In 2020, Max became an overnight sensation on TikTok, gaining over 300,000 followers. So we know Max as he was selected to join BBC Studios Factual Team as one of their creators in residence. During the six-month residency, the creators received training and advice from industry professionals at BBC Studios whilst they developed new show ideas. So today, we're going to discuss, firstly, his creative inspirations and how they've changed in the last 10 years since he's been filmmaking. Next, how Max became an overnight TikTok sensation. And finally, what he has learned about documentary making from the factual science team at BBC Studios. Welcome to the Talentworks podcast, Max. Thank you for having me, Shukri. First things first, can you sum up what you do? Yeah, so I am a resident creator at the BBC, or was. So I, yeah, I'm a filmmaker and I guess sort of a journalist and I've been working with the BBC for the last year or so. Let's get into your first clip. This is meant to represent your earliest creative work. 
what have you got for us? It's a snippet from a film I made that's called Everyone in This Film is Dying. And it's a short film I made at university. It's a, it's a spooky Halloween-y short film. I'm Arthur I. Elliot Chains, and this is your soothing meditation mix. Yo, can I come in? Yeah. Right away, though? No. Right, cool. How you doing, man? I am deeply unhappy. Sweet, sweet. Hey, can I borrow your laundry card? I'm out of credit. Oh, thanks, man. Girl was like, oh, Mick, your sheets are gross. So I needed a change of overnight. So have you um, had any luck recently? You know, <sighs> with the ladies? You seen a girl tonight, Mick? Yeah, I pulled last night, actually. Oh, I've got to get ready for round two. Hey, I don't kiss and tell, mate. Plus, you might know her. Oh, the club last night was so expensive. Five pounds for one Jaeger bomb. Like, what are they doing? Sit down. Now stand up. Be nice to people you hate. No, Nigel. That's just not you. The leap, Nigel. Take it. What's it like hearing that back? Ah, uh, distressing. That was uh, <laughs> that was a long time ago. It's distressing hearing it back. What made you get into filmmaking? Um, I was doing it when I was really little. I was an enormous attention seeker as a child, and um, yeah, from quite early on. I don't know, I think my parents bought me like a camera for Christmas, like a really, really terrible camera. And I just started filming. Me and my friends would just like film each other fighting most of the time, and then. I just didn't grow out of it. And then the fighting just became part of like slowly more theatrical short films. And then it just never ended. So by the time I was at uni, I'd been making films technically for like, I don't know, like a decade. And there, was, there wasn't really a clear moment where I was like, oh, I'll take film seriously. It was just a sort of natural descent. <laughs> it's how it felt. So in this film, there's a lot of blood. There's a lot of gore. Mm-hmm. I'm interested to know what were some of your influences during that time and how has that changed? I think when I was at that age, like, my influences were more, had the sort of classic 18-year-old boy, like, you know, I liked Tarantino and stuff like that, and I liked sort of, like, violent cinema. But, no, I feel like my references changed quite a lot after that. The the films I was making, like, early on, it was just, like, fun excuses to shoot, yeah, murder scenes and, and, and silly stuff. Whereas I think later on, like, now I'm only really interested in, like, very small microcosmic things. So, yeah, I don't know. The references back then, God knows. Ones that I probably don't enjoy anywhere near as much now. Interesting. Who do you draw influence from now? Now, uh, ma'am, I really like Ruben Osland. Ah, oh, okay. Um, like the guy that made like Force Majeure and The Square and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I really love like, the sort of awkward nastiness of a lot of Scandinavian cinema and, and the commentaries on like sort of like politeness and typical family units and stuff. So... Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I, th- I think I like directors who really, really don't partition comedy and tragedy, where like everything you're watching is like you're, you're never sure whether you should laugh or cry. And there aren't moments that are like specifically designated as this is funny or this is sad. They just sort of bleed into one another. I think that's that's beautiful. The line between sort of like tragedy and farce being non-existent or, or continually sort of blurred. Yeah, that is such a fine line, isn't it? It's such an art to like reach that definitely i think it's so rare that directors can like 
manage it because it's such a fine-tuned combination of like performance of editing style of script like there's so much that has to happen for you to hit that perfect mark in the middle and I, I do think it's incredibly rare but yeah so I think at the moment like that's what I'm most into sort of like awkwardness and and the line between something that's very very dark and nasty and bleak and very funny and sometimes sweet and uplifting I don't know I like the in-betweens yeah, that's very Scandi, actually. It's very, very super Scandi. Yeah. That's so true. <laughs> I love it. So a lot of the comments on your film on YouTube mention the soundtrack. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Tell us a bit about how music features in your work. Yes, yeah, so my um, my family are all quite musical and I'm, I'm the, the least musical one. That's not true, is it, Max? It is true. It is true. They're, they're, well, they're all, they're all excellent and they're all musicians in a sort of traditional being good at music way. Um, but I obviously desperately wanted some kind of attention for my musical ability, but I couldn't really pick any instruments that had already been played by the rest of my family because otherwise they'd be better than me at all of them. <laughs> um, so I chose to start making these awful, awful like synth songs got really into my simps Mm because i was like you you don't want to play the synth because you know how how shit it sounds so if i get really into the synth no one can be like that's not good you're not good because i'll be like well it's my own thing you don't you know you don't know your way around a fucking synth so i started (laughs) making synth music and i started using it in all my films and all my films have these like often quite repellent and strange synth soundtracks which i really you know i think they're fun (laughs) <laughs> the king of synths the king of synths mate There's, and, and there is a perverse psychology to the king of synths it's not good it's not uh, healthy I have so many follow up questions ask all of them one is what effect do you think the synth sound adds I mean, it's like a lot of my films are already so strange and weird that I think the uh, I have a composer now called George Dimitri who's like wonderful and who shares my love mm-hmm. for, for sort of weird and nasty synths <laughs> and samplers yeah and it's like I don't know like the, the the last film we made was described as that one film festival we haven't released it yet but as an assault on the senses wow and it was a, it was not a pleasant review it was, you it should was put that on the poster we absolutely should mm-hmm. <laughs> one star an assault <laughs> on the senses um, I think we just we love making films I think the effect for us is a lot of the time like using the synths less as like a scoring device Mm -hmm. and more as like a sort of I don't know as like a character seeing it as like something that can like send a scene into like absolute blind fury or like can sort of cover dialogue to the point where you're you're catching the odd word which really really angers people when they're watching films they're like why can't I hear every little thing but it's like you know you miss words in conversation normally so I, I quite like sometimes this, this idea of like if it's not a conversation that you need to be hearing the idea of like the synth going beyond just underlying what's going on in the film and becoming part of just like a general feeling and sensation and sometimes even blurring into like being too loud for you to hear the dialogue which again I know people have very strong feelings about yeah I might be one of those people (laughs) (laughs) so let's move on to your next clip the most significant moment in your career talk us through it um so this is a clip from a film called I Will Despise You And it's a short film I made about two years ago, just before the pandemic, back when I was living in Birmingham. It's about two sort of yuppies on a date who decide to try and fall in love by listing all of their flaws and sort of fall in love with each other's vulnerability. Or do they? Dum, dum, dum. Dum, dum, dum. (laughs) No, no, I mean, it's fine. I spent nine hours making sure I didn't put photos on with friends that were hotter than me. Nine hours? Yeah, I'm one of them. Yes, I am. (laughs) Some kind of game. It's like a little, little game of how shitty I'll be. Yeah, kind of fucked up first date. Yeah, but yeah. 
I kind of like. No, me too. Me too. Mm-hmm. More floors. You go. More floors. Yeah, more floors. Where do I start? Um, mm-hmm. um I'm. I suppose I'm insecure. Uh, uh, no. Not allowed. Everyone is insecure. Everyone's insecure. Everyone. Yeah, yeah everyone's insecure. No, they are. Yeah, but I, I just don't like being around people who are comfortable with their own skin. Like even my friends, I just, I just hate it. Oh, relentless empathy. All right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Your turn. Okay, I have a big complex. Yeah. Yeah, with other blonde women. Yeah, so if we were to date, um, and you have any blonde female friends, then I'll fucking murder them. Murder them. In the night. That's okay, I'll secretly hate 90% of your male friends. Really? (laughs) So, Max, just like, just one question off the bat. Yeah. Is this how most of your dates go? You know what? There was there was a there was a period where, when I was writing it, when I was having a lot of weird and draining and confusing dates. But what's more funny is that, like, since I've made that film, it's become the nastiest self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> because, obviously, women find out about the film and then they watch it. And then it's obviously a very funny thing to replicate on a date. So it's punished me more since making it, actually, bizarrely. <laughs> Some of my dates do go that way because people find it funny to, to be like, ha, look, doing the thing from your film. It's like, very good. <laughs> I Very see what good. you did there. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, what inspired the short film? Was it your interesting dates? <laughs> sort of. I was actually, I only remembered this recently. I was so miserable when I, at the time of making that film. So, this was two years ago. I, um, I'd come out of uni, and um, after three years of being told what a, what a good little boy I was on my uni course, I found I could not, for the life of me, get a job. I got a job selling TVs. Um, so, I worked five days a week but all weekends I was living at home my friend had come to stay in my family home and then my other family came back to the point where for a while we were sharing a bed and every single night I'd get blind drunk and then in the morning like with my friend we'd just like eat port scratchings and drink like pints of gin and tonic and then I'd get up at like seven and go sell TVs and I became to like I got rejected from so many jobs that I believed it was just an immutable fact that I was unemployable and thick <laughs> and throughout that period I went on a lot of dates because I was bored and like yeah I guess like fell into this trope of like oh I guess it's like I don't know I was questioning like is it good to be like honest on dates and I think because I was feeling unhappy I was finding it funny to be self-deprecating and miserable and to list all my flaws and I a lot of the time found it was funny because like then it's reciprocated so uh yeah you just end up with this situation where like you can end up quickly having a game of like who's the worst person and I, and I was at a stage in my life where I felt like a particularly bad and pathetic person. So I think, yeah, I don't know, it just came out of that. It came out of this quite miserable space, which is so funny now because I realise how happy making that film made me. Throughout that period, it was a real lifeline. I want to know, how do you go about starting a film? Oh, my, I mean, I guess normally the process, it starts with like, I don't know, like obviously the idea stage, normally like some sort of problem I've been having that I want to sort of work through in a film. And then it'll be, it'll take quite a while for me to then maybe like formulate it in my head, normally without writing anything down. And eventually I'll sit down and it'll get written for me normally very quickly. But after like weeks or months of thinking about it, and then from there, like, yeah, it is a long process because it's like, you've got to find the money. I mean, like, I Will Despise You, that film was like, you know, yeah, I just refunded it. We just paid for it ourselves and I just tried to sell as many TVs as I could and and make a little bit more money to fund it. And that like, you know, that took a while. And then you gotta be so careful with the budget. We filmed the whole thing in like two days and yeah, you've got to organise so much stuff. And it's it's it it becomes especially with a low budget film, 
weeks of planning and then you just compress into like two days of shooting because filming is so expensive because you're paying for everyone's time and accommodation and for food and for the actor's day rates and for all the equipment you're renting. So it's like, you know, you plan for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and you're as meticulous as possible. And then you have two days where everything can just be fucked up. And really as a director, like on set, a lot of your work is like pre-done. You know, if you've had rehearsals with the actors and like the two actors in that, Kel Chambers and Daisy Manda, they were both amazing. So it's like, I know that the acting is going to be great. The script I've already written, I've got an amazing DOP, an amazing editor, amazing producers, amazing sound recorders. It's like, then your job is to just like make sure nothing fucks up. And the only thing you can do as a director <laughs> is make sure nothing fucks up. It's like the only way you can do your job properly is if nothing goes wrong. Then you just spend two days sort of being generally stressed and sort of checking that everyone's all right. And if you've got a good crew, it almost moves without you. <laughs> it's a very interesting role. So yeah, and there is like so much hard work, and it's but it's really weird. I feel like it, the director's role is odd because it's like in those two days, the people that are doing like sort of more technically skilled jobs, it's like, yeah, there's an incredible amount of stress to get everything right that I don't have to necessarily be part of. And I'm just sort of sitting there worrying about time and making minute changes to performances that are already pretty good. And then moving shots around as everything falls apart, as it often does, and you don't have time to get everything you wanted. So yeah, in terms of the hard work, I guess those are the areas that are difficult. I'm also interested to hear a little bit more about like your ideas stage. Mm. Like, how do you come up with the ideas? Do they come to you most of the time? Like, when you're in the shower, right before you're about to go to sleep. Like, how do you form something into a script? I feel like it's always they always come quite naturally. I'm always. I'm perpetually in a state of writing about something that is causing me some kind of problem or stressing me out a little bit. That's normally when the idea happens. I'll just be thinking about it so much that naturally I'll like find myself accidentally externalising it into some sort of character. So I don't know, I see it as, as just a, as a pretty easy and natural process, but that's because I, I exclusively write about things that bother me, which I also think is why my films have taken a bit of a bleak turn in the last few years. Uh, I don't want to say anything, but... Everyone in this film is dying and I will despise you aren't the chirpiest. They're not the chirpiest. And you know what? Titles? They are happy films in <laughs> comparison. The, the last one I made is called Man Sells Drink. It's vile. I, I, I haven't released it yet. I think it's, I think it's funny. I, we, we submitted it to festivals as a comedy and it got removed from the comedy category and was played as drama and horror. Okay. We thought it was funny, man. <laughs> Me and Kel, the main actor, thought it was the funniest thing no one else did. And the stuff I'm writing at the moment, yeah, is normally... But it's not all that. It's not all bleak. It's like, you know... What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you on a shoot? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, was, I was once making an advert for, like, a farming recruitment company. That's very niche. Very niche. And what happened was we got... We got robbed. The equipment we rented got robbed. What? I can't remember the exact value of the equipment, but I'm pretty sure it was in the 200 grand region. Oh or maybe 100 grand. God. I can't. It's been such a long time. <laughs> Give or take 100 grand. Uh, and basically, uh, it had been robbed from me and my producer had, had walked into a hotel and briefly left it in his car, but had unknowingly been tailed by um, some professional thieves because we were in London near Finsby Park. Oh, and no. as I should have known, London is, you know, it's it's there are some really good thieves in London. They're very skilled. Yeah, They're they are skilled. Erudite people. By the way, um, Max is from Birmingham. Yeah, so I'm from he's Birmingham. very new to this London it's like, life. <laughs> it's the green pastures of Birmingham, you know, everyone's 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 sweet as cookies there. But here in London, frightening. Oh. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> so these these men broke into our, uh, our yeah the car and they robbed it all and then um yeah the police turned up and then we were we were, we were sort of like oh this isn't very nice uh, oh, to, no. to and then uh, the insurance company were like oh yeah so like you just owe us 100 grand now because you left it in a car and you're not insured and every single week that is gonna increase by two grand as a loss of hire charge so that was interesting news to hear as someone that had like you know maybe 60 quid in their savings after like spunking the rest of it on some stupid film i was like oh good <laughs> that's, that's nice that's um, a nice bit of debt to be saddled with that is really unfortunate max yes imagine this mm-hmm. someone very rich comes to you mm. let's say jeff bezos oh wow says max yeah I'm not going to build that spaceship right now. Mm-hmm. I've got unlimited funds mm-hmm. that I could spare you. Mm-hmm. What would you have done differently if you had all of this unlimited money from Jeff Bezos? Oh, man. I mean, like, I'd be so terrified, I think, working with like a massive budget because I'm so used to like smaller things. At the moment, I'm writing something that I think is quite fun, which is about a sort of like swingers retreat that a load of couples go on, um, these sort of like, British couples from various parts of the UK. They have this sort of rapidly declining situation where they're sort of getting picked off one by one by this sort of like Puritan cult. That's something I find very fun. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I guess that's what I would write. It's something I'm interested in at the moment and I would like to have money to make something sort of slightly bigger in scale. But I don't I don't want to make anything crazy. You know, if he was like, I'll have millions and millions and millions, I would still rather make something on a pretty cheap budget and have a lot of money to distribute it. Like, that would be meant. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not too fussed about making, like, I've never been interested in, like, big budget and, like, I'm just so uninterested in films with, like, a big scale or, like, a big, like, you know, films about the potential end of the world mm-hmm. or films about, like... I don't know, like the destruction of a city or even films about like wars and stuff. I don't know. I'm just really interested in like just really, really caring and feeling like desperate sort of empathy for like just a couple of characters is is what I'm fascinated by. So I feel like I I would never really be interested in making something like super expensive, but I'd love to make my swinger retreat murder film that I'm really, really interested in the moment. Yeah, you're not asking for too much. I'd be like, Jeff, look, buddy, I'm a goofy little guy that's like, (laughs) literally could not be asking for less i can't wait for the future where this soundbite of you saying i have no interest in making big budget films is used against you i can't wait for that when you become the next christopher nolan (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah i look forward to that i can't wait thanks to be doing those interviews and they pull out these receipts (laughs) (laughs) this podcast gonna ruin my career before it's begun essentially yes Ah, (laughs) okay Let's fast forward into the present. What's your third clip? So my third clip is what I've been working on at the moment. It's a BBC reel. So it's a sort of like short documentary about death and dying. And this is more representative of what I've been doing recently, which is science journalism rather than film, although the two have overlapped a little bit. Our life, that thing where you're born and then get slightly bigger, fall in love with a person or fishing, maybe make some more little people and then before you know it, it's time for the next part. Death, dying, the inevitable demise of our being. Now there's an eclectic range of ways you could die. It's quite commonly heart disease or cancer, but equally you could join the 600-ish yearly victims of autoerotic asphyxiation. I don't know you. 
No matter how you die, at some point you'll experience clinical death, which is sort of like life, but just without breathing or blood circulation. In other words, it's the beginning of the passage from this life into that other bit. But for most people, death isn't completely instantaneous. So what can modern science tell us about the experience of those very final moments? What does it feel like to die? Okay, Max, this is your third clip. And just, I would like to address the elephant in the room. What is this obsession with death? Oh, man, I love death. I'm so fascinated by death. I have been for such a long time too. Interesting. By the way, I really love this film. Everybody should go check it out. It's on BBC Reels website and YouTube channel. I thought it did just what you described earlier of it being really funny, but really dark. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. That's really sweet. Just touching back on your residency, can you yeah. tell us a little bit more about how you got the residency? Yeah, sure. So I uh, I was at another company and I was directing sort of like adverts for like social media. And at some point I ended up, I ended up working for TikTok. I ended up making TikToks for TikTok, <laughs> educational stuff on like science and history and stuff. I didn't have any qualifications, but they they, they were enjoying sort of like they wanted to, you know, to, to have more educational content on the platform. Yeah, I, so I was working for TikTok and I was making like sort of science uh, content in particular. That was like the content that sort of went a little bit viral. And I only got the, like, I was asked by my company to make this pitch for TikTok and I did it in a sort of sarcastic and very reluctant way because I was like, I don't like TikTok or what it stands for. And then unfortunately they, were, they, they, they liked it and I had to do that <laughs> full time as a job for like six months. Oh, that was really unfortunate. Sorry yeah. about that. No, no, that's absolutely fine. I, I led this like, very strange existence sort of like, you know, getting up and doing a couple of hours in front of a sort of this phone. It was during COVID. So being trapped in this room, filming these TikToks, slowly losing my mind. Then at some point, the BBC saw the TikToks and, and Zoe Heron, who's an exec in the science unit, was very, very kind and asked me to do a residency here, at which point I have been able to make much, much, much better content with her and the rest of the team on the digital science unit. So you were in the factual science team. Can you talk us through like a day in the life? What's great about the digital science unit is like I've been able to cover a lot of different topics. So I, I've done a sort of series for BBC Earth Lab, which is like their sort of YouTube channel on the same sort of thing, like phenomenological experience. I've been doing like an episode on vision, an episode on like the self, an episode on time and looking at where our human experience of these things diverges from the actual things in question from a scientific perspective. So in terms of day in the life, it's, you know, it's been crazy. Sometimes I get to go and travel somewhere and, and interview like a physicist in, in their home or some eminent social psychologist or sort of like meet me in a studio. That's always amazing. Sometimes it's just research and it's reading science papers and it's putting it together. Sometimes it's composing a bit of music for the edit or doing the edit or the color grade or being in a studio and filming piece to cams. And all the time we try to dramatize and visualize what's going on in like sort of quite silly, stupid ways. So there's a lot of that. We did an episode on love. So I went on a date with a girl and we were trying to measure her pupil dilation. So we attached a sort of light to her head so that we could see her pupils very clearly and then attached a camera next to her. And then I did the 36 questions to fall in love, which is sort of this like oh, wow. social technique. And then I sort of, yeah, I was deliberately acting a bit weird to make the video funnier. That was a very interesting day. So. I can imagine. Okay, what are things you've learned about television production that you didn't know before this residency? I think the main one, it's been very specific to the BBC, but learning the sort of editorial guidelines and values. Because I was previously doing sort of like, you know, sort of half journalism, but there was no one, no one was paying that much attention. 
So it wasn't like I would, you know, or I, <laughs> I just, like, I'd get to like sort of do my own thing and be like, well, this person says this and this person says this. And I think, and I'd sort of, you know, there'd be a lot of conjecture and it's like a bit fast and loose with like, you know, like being opinionated and with making mean jokes at the expense of politicians. And I obviously cannot do that at the BBC. But <laughs> the further than that, the BBC's taught me the sort of importance of like really, really rigorous fact checking and really sort of rigorous attempts to achieve impartiality, which is difficult and a whole f- philosophical field in itself in terms of what that word means. But I think the way the BBC strives towards it is is really impressive and it did fundamentally change the way I thought I should approach journalism. We ask every guest to look into the crystal ball of their future. Oh, spooky. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you see, Max? What do you see? Uh, is it a nice crystal ball or a mean one? Define what you mean by mean. Well, you know, I feel like there are many. There's a chaotic web of, of futures, uh, light and dark, Chuck Creek, that I... Uh, What's your ideal... I'm assuming your ideal would be the light one and not yeah. the dark one, no, but that I is want, an assumption that I'm making. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you assume that? <laughs> yeah, I guess like in terms of like perfect future, yeah, I would love to be directing uh, for TV. I'd love to still be continuing to appear in front of the camera because it's something I find very fun. Yeah, maybe film too. Yeah, I'd like to be like writing stories that a lot of people can watch. I think that would be really nice. I think it'd be great to have a wider pool of like of feedback positive and negative to have people just engaging with my work in some way would be so nice but of course I'd rather be in the dark one well thanks Max we've come to the end of the podcast thank you so much thank for you us. for coming and being our wonderful guest any last words <laughs> why are you gonna do something <laughs> <laughs> any words of advice advice to yeah to you know uni students right now that are making their uni student films with a tiny tiny budget oh just make the most of your friends not needing that much sleep and not working and make them make films with you and make sure there's alcohol on set because you can make a lot of stuff and you can learn a lot from it great thank you is that okay (laughs) (laughs) thanks for listening everyone if you're interested in knowing more about Max you can find him on Instagram at Max Tobin that's M-A-X-X T-O-B-I-N You can also find us at BBC Studios Tannerworks This has been a Curly Media production on behalf of BBC Studios See you next time This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.